Hi, this is John from Prodigal Church. We want to thank you for listening to this week's teaching. The best way to watch and listen is through our Prodigal mobile app, available at your app store. We hope you are moved to love God and others in a greater way. Now, let's dive right into this week's teaching. Noah does not try and save all of his silver and gold and take it with him on the ark. He doesn't build a a treasure chest that he stores at the bottom of the boat where all of his his wealth and gold and silver can be placed in there so they can make it through the flood, nor does Noah allow all of his wealth to be drowned with everything else in the flood. No, Noah didn't have any money left. He spent all he had to achieve everything that God wanted for him. One of the things that Noah's story reminds us of is that money isn't the purpose of life. That no matter how much we have, it is temporary and can always be taken from us. And we can't bring it with us. And the biblical worldview is starkly different than the world's point of view when it comes to money. See, in week one of our series, we looked at the Epic of Gilgamesh, this this epic ancient flood account that was written well before Genesis. And we saw how the Hebrew flood story contrasts with the Babylonian flood story. And the Genesis account shows us important differences between Noah and Utna Pishtim, who is the hero in the Epic of Gilgamesh. And more importantly, it shows us the difference between the Babylonian gods and the God of the Hebrews. In the Epic of Gilgamesh, Utna Pishtim was allowed to bring all of his silver, gold, and possessions with him on the ark. Not only was the hero of the story consumed with money, but his gods were also consumed with money. And we see this throughout human history, and we see it now. We become like our gods. May it ever be true that we become more and more like Christ, shaped into the image of Christ. Now today we're going to finish the story of Noah and his ark, and we have quite a bit of ground to cover, okay? But then at the end, after we finish the story, we'll kind of wrestle through some of the theological ramifications and the deep questions that this story arises in so many of us. And so if you're ready, turn with me to Genesis chapter 8. But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark. And he sent a wind over the earth, and the waters receded. Now remember from week one, this was the turning point, right? This was the center point of the chiasm. This is where everything hinged upon. God remembers Noah. Verse two, now the springs of the deep and the floodgates of heavens had been closed, and the rain had stopped falling from the sky. The water receded steadily from the earth. At the end of the 150 days, the water had gone down. After 40 days, Noah opened a window he had made in the ark and sent out a raven, and it kept flying back and forth until the water had dried up from the earth. Then he sent out a dove to see if the water had receded from the surface of the ground, but the dove could find nowhere to perch because there was water all over the surface of the earth, so it returned to Noah in the ark. He reached out of his hand, took the dove, and brought it back to himself in the ark. He waited seven more days and again sent out the dove from the ark. When the dove returned to him in the evening, there in its beak was a freshly plucked olive leaf. Then Noah knew that the water had receded from the earth. He waited seven more days and then sent the dove out again, but this time 
it did not return to him. See, the olive leaf retrieved by the bird suggested that the amount of time um, for a, a, a tree to gain its leaves. It was a clue of the depth of the current floods. In the olive tree, it's a difficult tree to kill, even more difficult to cut down. Its leaves show that recovery on earth had begun. It was a symbol of new life and fertility to come after the flood. And the modern day symbol for peace is a dove holding an olive branch. And this comes from this story. It traces its roots from this account of Noah on the ark. Verse 15, then God said to Noah, come out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and their wives. Bring out every kind of living creature that is with you, the birds, the animals, and the creatures that move along the ground so they can multiply on earth and be fruitful and increase in number on it. So Noah came out together with his sons and his wife and his son's wives. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, taking some of the clean animals and clean birds. He sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. Now, this is it's pretty heavy stuff. Um, let's lighten the mood a little bit. Noah was one of the great financial geniuses of the Bible, right? Because he floated his stock while everyone else had theirs go into liquidation. Okay, that, that's, there's another good Noah Bible joke. Um, and if you want to hear more of these jokes, you can go back to week one. Uh, and here's the last one, the last cheesy joke of this whole Noah series. Why did the polar bears on the ark hang out near the insects? They were looking for the Arctic. The Arctic. It's great. Okay, that's it. No more. The first thing Noah does is sacrifice. The first thing Noah does is worship. He was starting over. Everything was gone. No home, no crops, no nothing. And the first thing that he does after spending almost a year on a boat with seven other people, he sacrifices to God. He worships. Let's keep going. I told you we had a lot of ground to cover. Chapter 9, verse 11. Then God blessed Noah and his son, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. So God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all life on earth. The story of Noah in the flood doesn't end with death, it ends with life. Now, we're going to get into this story of the rainbow a little bit later on in the message because there is definitely more than meets the eye to this story. The rainbow is where we think that the story of Noah ends, but it's not. There's 10 more verses. And the story of Noah 
this is where it takes a bit of an awkward turn and I'm gonna kind of summarize the story for you um, because we've done quite a bit of reading but feel free to read it on your own time I encourage you to do so it's found in Genesis chapter 9 verses 18 through 29 so Noah then plants a vineyard and a vineyard grows grapes and with grapes comes a fermentation process that leads to the invention of wine so Noah begins to drink some wine and then he drinks some more wine and Noah gets drunk and then Noah passes out naked in his tent. Okay, this is in the Bible, the Word of God. Then Noah's son Ham, who is to be the father of the Canaanites, uh, walks in and sees his dad um, exposed and passed out. So then Ham goes to his brothers, uh, Shem and Japheth, and he says, Dad's passed out, uncovered, and exposed in his tent. And then the two brothers then grab a blanket, a large blanket. They each hold a corner of it and they walk into their father's tent backwards so as not to see their father exposed. Then they lay the blanket upon their dad. Now when Noah wakes up and discovers what happens, he curses his son, Ham, the father of Canaan, and he blesses Shem and Japheth. And then verse 28, after the flood, Noah lived 350 years. Noah lived a total of 950 years, and then he died. What a weird way to end the story of our zookeeper friend named Noah, right? Who put all the animals on the archiarchy. Somehow our Sunday school teachers left out the part when he gets drunk and passes out naked in his tent. Why is this in the Bible? What did Ham do that merits him and his descendants being cursed by Noah? Now, this question has haunted scholars and rabbis and theologians over the centuries. And there are some really weird and kind of off-the-wall explanations, and some of them seem like quite a bit of a stretch. But to me, the most reasonable explanation is that this is an origin story. It is meant to justify Israel's conquest of Canaan that is found later in the book of Joshua. So the, Can the Canaanites... Uh, eventually become Israel's most heinous of enemies. And this is a foundational story that would explain to the readers why the Canaanites were so hated and why the Canaanites had to be subjugated by Israel. It was because Noah, their ancestor, had already cursed them through Ham, whom the narrator uh, describes twice as the father of Canaan. This bizarre story that immediately follows the, the flood epic was written as an origin story for Israel's hated enemies, the Canaanites. And the point seems to be to describe their ungodly origins in contrast to the divine origins of God's people Israel. Okay, it would be like me telling you some ungodly, weird, disgusting, and shameful story that makes a group of people look bad. And then at the end of the story, the punchline is, and that's how the Las Vegas Raiders became an NFL franchise. Okay? It is intended to taint your enemies. To, 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 to paint your enemies in a bad light. Almost every time the author uses the name Ham, he mentions that he's the father of Canaan. It's clear that the, the author seems to be much more interested in Canaan than he is in Ham. He's saying, Canaan got off on the wrong foot. 
This is why they have earned God's wrath and the punishment through God's chosen people, Israel. This is why Israel had to kill off the Canaanites hundreds of years later. Now, it doesn't solve all of our problems, right? The story raises a lot of questions, and it's one of the reasons why this story is so alluring. When the story was read to us as children, our questions were about the animals. When we read this story as adults, our questions are about God. It is here where we turn from the image of thousands of cute and cuddly animals all piled into a boat, and we turn instead to the image of a God killing everybody on planet Earth except for eight people. Now this short video helps put the tragic violence in perspective. Hey Noah, what are you doing in there? <laughs> yeah, Noah, it's not raining out here, you know? Hey, Noah, does it smell in there with all those animals? Nice boat, Noah. How long did it take you to build it? Like a hundred years? <laughs> hey, Noah, there's some more animals out here that want to ride. Yeah. I don't know. It's a very disturbing story, is it not? That as a result of the flood, every living human being, with the exception of eight, died. They were no more. I don't know about you. That bothers me. What could Noah and the Ark possibly teach us? What does this story tell us about God? How could a loving God destroy the world like this? What could a story like this possibly teach us about the divine? Well, the story is about God. We can all certainly learn from Noah, but in the end, we are not to be impressed with Noah. We are to be impressed with God. See, throughout the story, Noah shows no emotion, no joy, no grief, no impatience, no prayers of thanksgiving. Noah has virtually no personality at all in the story. The narrator leaves him as a flat character. The only personality he has is found in the characteristics that are attributed to him by God. He's a minor character, and God is the star of the story. So whatever we might learn from Noah is totally eclipsed by what we learn about and from God. God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. There was never a time when God wasn't like Jesus. We haven't always known this, but now we do. So how are we to interpret how are we to read this story and understand who God is in light of Jesus, in light of the cross? Well, when you contrast this flood account with others in the ancient Near East, we see a God who is very unlike the other gods. Look at the beginning of the story in Genesis chapter 6. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. 
this Hebrew word in verse 6, this filled with pain, it's the word atzav, and it denotes physical and mental anguish. This is not something that just caused God emotional pain. It caused God physical pain. Okay, this is, this is not something I heard back in Sunday school. And to best understand what this word atzav means in Genesis chapter 6, verse 6, when it says that God's heart was filled with pain, we need to flip it over to another place in the Bible where the same Hebrew word is used. Turn your Bibles to 2 Samuel where we read the story of how King David had a son named Absalom. And Absalom led a revolt against his father David and he, he succeeded in becoming king. But then in 2 Samuel 18, David's son Absalom is killed in battle. And at the end of that chapter, there's this heartbreaking scene where King David learns of his son's death. David deeply moved and wept. He cried out, Oh my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you, oh Absalom, my son, my son. You can, you can sense and feel the pain of David, not as king, but as father, losing his son. Even though his son had betrayed him, even though his son overthrew him, there's this deep pain that is inconsolable in David as father. And then in 2 Samuel chapter 19, verse 2, the scripture says that David was grieved for his son. The Hebrew word translated grieve is the same word used in Genesis chapter 6 in describing how God felt in seeing the wickedness of humanity. Atsav. It's the same word, Genesis 6 and 2 Samuel 19, when David first heard the news that his son had been killed in his war of revolt against his father. Did you catch that? The Hebrew word for filled with pain, atzav, used in Genesis chapter 6, is also used to describe how a father feels when his son dies before they have a chance to reconcile. God wasn't cold and angry at humanity like the Babylonian gods were. God wasn't cold and angry at humanity in Genesis 6. No, he was heartbroken. He was grief-stricken. He was distraught. The God of the Bible isn't mad like the other gods. He is grieving for his lost son, a physical anguish, a mental anguish. And God's pain doesn't end with the flood. Let's look at this rainbow, right? This rainbow, it's beautiful. Every time I remember, just the awe that I'm struck with, every time I see it, even today, and seeing that awe in the eyes of my children when they see it now. Now, science would have a real convenient explanation uh, about a rainbow. Science would say something like, well, as the waves of light pass through the prism created by the drops of water inside the clouds, the light ray would be separated into different bands of color to create the beautiful display that we now see. And mythically, there's a leprechaun with a pot of gold at the bottom. Okay, that's what science would say. Not the last part, but the former. Now, uh, this explanation, while true, it lacks something. Soul. Let me ask a question. In the ancient world, what is a bow? I'm not talking about the kind of bow that we put in our hair or we put on presents. What is a bow? Well, it's, it's a weapon. It's used to shoot arrows. 
And the Hebrew word for rainbow is the same word as that of the bow as a weapon. And in the form of the rainbow, which direction is the weapon pointed? Yeah, it's, it's pointed heavenward. It's pointed away from the earth. Now, listen to this, and if you don't catch anything else, catch this. In the ninth chapter of Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, God's holiness drew back the bow of judgment. And in the Gospels of the New Testament, a loving father let the arrow fly. And my friends, when that arrow, when that ugly arrow found its target, it quivered into the very heart of God on Calvary's cross. God took the judgment that we deserved upon himself. The story of Noah points to the death and resurrection of Jesus. What does it feel like to be a holy God? It feels like a crown of thorns placed upon your forehead. It feels like nails piercing your feet and your hands. It feels like a spear thrust into your side. It feels like rejection and betrayal and denial and death. It hurts to be a holy God. May we be reminded of God's love in the middle of our questions. May we be reminded of God's love in the middle of our floods. May we not trust in money or wealth, but in the God of Israel. May our hearts grieve as God's does for our missing sons and daughters. And may Christ grant us dry land as the floodwaters begin to cease in Jesus' name.